Are you ready to turn it up? Alright parents, go ahead and tuck the kids in. PG time is over. You're in the mix. Hello everybody and welcome to Everything Paranormal Podcast Show 2021. I am your host, Paramike. This is episode 20. Holy crap. We are rolling along as much as possible. If you heard that bang, Paralore just dropped something, which is okay. Um, she wanted me to kick it off, so that's what I'm doing. But she is in the deep, dark dungeon of the paranormal news world and everything else. I don't know if I should say the still mood of fuck it all, yeah. or are you out of that is the question. But we'll find out a little bit later on. She still has some... Uh, stories to finish up. I don't know how many are left. Uh, oh, hold on. Well, while she's counting, we also have some more urban legends to bring to you as well, which should be fun. Try to finish those up, and then I can work on some other things that I can find, which is awesome. But we're rolling along. A lot of uh, thanks to our Facebook followers of our podcast show which is awesome. More people keep joining each and every time I turn around and I look at the numbers, which let's see if I can get to it. So I can let you know how many wonderful people we have on our Facebook page that is following and listening. Um, so far, our YouTube channel's not doing too bad, but I'd like to see more people join over there as much as possible let's see we have 271 people following our facebook page thank you very much and 267 people like it which is pretty awesome but still no phone calls of paranormal news and stories and people that want to share their paranormal stories to our number at 724-856-0031 that is our dark line free number and everything um please keep checking out everything backslash ep dot html and please go to our youtube page as well and uh sign up it's free become a subscriber to it so this way here if you don't want to keep checking back on facebook and everything for our uploads you can always subscribe to our YouTube channel and it will notify you that a new episode has been posted. So far there is, I think, 19 total? Huh? Yes, 19 yep. total. Sorry, my brain decided to go for a few seconds there. You just wrote it down too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, you know, if you can't find the page, which is normally normal for a lot of people just type up in the search bar on youtube epps 2021 and it will bring you to the page i've tested it i've tried it and it works which is great it will bring you right to a page where you could just pop in hit the subscribe button and you can check out all 19 of our episodes for our podcast show. It looks like you just was about did to say you, something. Uh, did you put did you put up the YouTube link for Facebook yet? Not yet. I can do that right now. All right. I, uh, While you doing and I got your like stories. nineteen uh, stories to go. Okay, so I can do that while you're reading your stories. Uh, I 
said for you to kick off because I'm making a cigarette. I know. I know. But I'm just saying I can do that when you get ready to do your stories. Yeah. So we're going to hit Urban Legends, and the top topic is Flipbook, which was uh, back in December of 2011. And it's a pretty good drawing of a stick figure. I like it. It goes, as a kid, I loved making flip books. If anybody of you remember flip books, please, please, in our YouTube page or Facebook page, leave a comment down below if you remember creating flip books as a kid. I never did, so. But I know what flip they are. Flip books are basically uh... cartoonish style things for like a story. Well, that I know. They're actually uh, pop-up books, pop-up picture books. No, they don't pop up. It's just a flip book where you take a book, like a book, and you just flip it really fast, and you can see like the characters moving. That's what a flip book is. I know. I'm old enough to remember that. Um, they were all I did in art class whenever I had the chance. I worked really hard on one particular flip book that was around 50 pages long. Holy crap. I never even did that during our class. That's not that long. For 50 pages, that's not that long. For a, a kid, it is. A is like over 300 or more. Yeah, but this is a kid. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of talent and time consuming to make a 50 page flip book. I guess it had a simple stick figure that would walk onto the page, wave at me, and just simply walk off. I looked at it dozens of times on the day that I made it, but eventually I got bored. Mm, time to switch. I mean, once it was finished, okay... Somebody forgot to put an I in here. It just goes T. Just wasn't something it can keep someone entertained for long. It wasn't. No, it's just a T. They forgot to put the the kid forgot to put the I or something, just or whoever wrote it. the story. I think it was supposed to say finished, comma. It just wasn't something that can keep someone entertained for long. So. Yeah, just. Like I keep saying, ad-lib it. If it's spelled wrong, ad-lib it. No, it's just the person that wrote this forgot to put the I for it. He just hit T and then continued. <laughs> That's Basic funny. Basic grammar, people. Yeah. Grammarly.com. Download it for your PC. If you screw up while you're typing, it helps. It's free. I tossed it under my bed and never gave it a second thought. A few months later, I was cleaning up my room and swept the stack of paper out from under the corner of my bed. I couldn't quite remember what it was. <gasps> Are you having amnesia? Or a big-ass brain fart? Hmm. Uh, da, 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 da. A few months later, I was cleaning up my room. I flipped 
through it once more as I was flipping, I noticed that the pages hadn't worn out at all. Hmm. Must be some really good paper. I flipped through it again. The little stick man walked onto the page, but this time he didn't walk off. Dun, dun, dun. The little stick man walked onto the page and didn't walk off. Instead, a second stick man walked on with something in his hand. He multiplied. Holy crap. He walked up to the first stick man and whacked the poor fellow in the head. The first stick man fell and the second stick man swung to hit the first stick man again and again and again. I guess this is how the uh, saying goes. Batter up! Blood ran from the first stick man's jagged body. Okay. It looked like nothing more than a smeared pencil stain. The killer stick man proceeded to bend down and tear apart the first stick man's body. Limb by thin limb. He bent each line into letters and set them up upon the page to form a single word. Then grabbed the base of his own round head and tore it off. Rip! Followed by his legs and then one of his own arms. His zigzagged body parts formed a second word. What I read made me burn the book. You're next. And that comes from Tyler, Texas. Sounds like something. Uh, sounds like something. Uh, R.L. Stein would have wrote. That or um, oh damn, what's that bitch's name? J.K. Rawlings. That's her name. Yeah. Brain fart. Sorry. Okay, let's. Uh oh, where'd it go? Oh, there it is. My computer's acting stupid. Science Fair Experiment is the next one. Mm-hmm. Those usually can go perfectly in a lot of ways. And in other ways, it's catastrophic. I know. I've been burnt by science experiments at fairs. And it wasn't even in mine. This was also December 2011. A freshman at Eagle Rock Junior High won first prize at the Greater Idaho Falls Science Fair on January 26th. In his project, he urged people to sign a petition demanding strict control or total elimination of the chemical dihydrin monoxide. And for plenty of good reasons, since it can, 
And here is the seven things that is wrong with this garbage. Number one, cause extensive sweating and vomiting. <laughs> Number two, it is a major component in acid rain. And acid reflex. Acid rain. Well, we know planet Earth does not have acid rain. So he must be thinking of another planet somewhere that has acid rain. If it's in this galaxy or some other universe, I don't know. Number three. It can cause severe burns in its gastric state. Oh, my asshole. Number four. Accidentally in inhalation can kill you. Ooh. It's a new type of drug. Number five. It contributes to erosion. Hmm. A new way to make rust faster. Number six. It decreases event effectiveness of automobile brakes. Shouldn't that be uh, dissolves automobile brakes? Would be a lot better. Shit, I can't stop! Ah, <laughs> oh, damn, I hate a tree. Number seven, and the last one. It has been found in tumors. Great. Of terminal cancer patients. Oh, wonderful. Well, you don't. You don't have. You don't have. You're not. I don't have the one, tumor you're anymore. you're stage four. Stage four still, but still in remission. Yeah. But and great. You don't just, have tumors. Well, I did back in 2016, but it, this is shocking to me that it was. It's been found in tumors of terminal cancer patients. You need may need to talk to Dr. Fuhrer about. Having you have an MRIs done on every part of your body, it might not have just to, your head. I may also have to talk to my cancer doctor here in town uh, as well about that. Uh, let's, which unfortunately I don't see him until March. Uh, he asked 150 people if they supported a ban of the of the chemical. 143. Said yes. With chemical romance? No, about banning this chemical. Oh, yeah. 140, 143 said yes. Six were undecided. Only one knew that the chemical was... Take a big guess. Mm. And it has... It's the opposite version of... The way we say it, but it's per, it, to science, it's H2O. Yeah. Water. The title of his prize-winning project was, How Gullible Are You? <laughs> that's not a science experiment to bring it to the fair for a chemical. No, that's a fucking book report. How gullible are you is, just look out your freaking fuck door. Sit there and you see a bunch of gullible dumbasses out there that doesn't know anything. 
he was attempting to show how um, conditioned we have become to the spreading fear of everything in our environment. The conclusion is obvious. Obvious for a dumbass. There is such a thing as environmental. Yeah. This comes from Valley Ho. And that's with a J. I know it sounds like an H. But it's in California. <laughs> hmm. It went from scientific methods to something that we drink almost every single day. Yeah. We shower and take a bath in it every single day. To the title, How Gullible Are We? (laughs) Just look at your freaking front door. Walk around. Don't drive. Just walk around and you'll see how many gullible dumbasses there are in the world. That could be a science fair project. Not even. Uh, Oh, I like this one. Lies and fireflies. Mm. This should be a good one. Uh, Let's Uh, see. Let me get two of my... uh, Two of the 19 I got got here. Alright, so I'm going to pass it over to Paralore in the Dark Side News World. Why I throw up episode 19 as a YouTube link for our Facebook page and our Twitter page. So enjoy her. <laughs> uh, this is one you sent me sent me a while back. Um, the twenty second of last of shit year. Let's see. Title reads: Man killed in shock attack. A popular tourist beach. Yeah, I remember that one. People told to stay out of the water. I couldn't even get through the whole story. I started get feeling sick about it. Hang on. The incident happened off Vroom's Cable Beach on the, on the north coast of Western Australia. With people warned to stay away as authorities shared for the shark, search for the shark. Not shared, searched. Uh, okay. Uh, the man was re- recovered from the water off Broom Cable Beach and was tr- and treated by local police officers before an ambulance arrived. Australian Broadcasting Corp. ABC. Hopefully not the one that's in the U.S. T- television said, Cable Beach, which is a 14-mile stretch of White Sand Beach, was closed after the incident on Sunday. People were urged to stay away as authorities searched for the shark. It is believed to have been seen and sh- shot at earlier in the day but not yet captured or killed. Tourist Ricky and Stuart Elsing told ABC News they were woken up by the sound of sirens screeching towards the beach. Hello. 
Miss Elsing said they were quite shocked. It didn't cut. It didn't cross my mind. It was a shark attack, because I don't think there's been been one up for up here for years. Mister Elsing added. He said you get a lot of reef sharks and shovel-nosed rays, things like that, and hammerheads. To have something like this is unusual and very devastating. W.A. Premier Mark McGowan described the incident as traumatic and unexpected. He extended his thoughts to the victim's family. The victim ha had not yet been named. Broom does not have a significant history of shark attacks. Well, it does now! This year in Australia's deadliest year for shark attacks since 2014, with eight deaths recorded to date. The most recent person to die from a shark attack in Oz, Oz, Australia, was Andrew Sharp, 52, who was attacked while surfing with friends at Kelp Bends in Western Australia. Well, duh. Experts believe cooler water temperatures are behind an increased number of un uh, unprovoked and deadly suspected, suspected great white shark attacks since January, the highest for 86 years. And that's it. I'm going to say this. In Australia, there are numbers of great white sharks spotted every single fucking day. So, it does, it shouldn't really surprise anybody that in Australia there was a shark attack. I mean, most shark attacks are great, are from great whites. And for me to say that, from for my input on it, on the story I just read, the ocean is the great white shark's kitchen. They were in the waters way before we walked the earth. And last time I checked, great whites are protected from uh, as an endangered species list. Or on the uh, endangered species list, so they shouldn't shouldn't be trying to kill or shoot the damn shark. And there are uh, reports of great white shark attacks where it's either a rogue shark or. Uh, the shark is mistaken for a pot for a human possibly looking like a seal. And of course, a common one is the most common is a uh, is a diver 
or not a diver, but a surfer who's in the water in what in whatever part of the world that have great whites it waits for uh, a specific type of waves that they want to surf uh, to the shore on. There have been stories of surfers being attacked by great white sharks because they piss in the fucking water. I don't know what's what of the human anatomy attracts great white sharks when someone pisses in the fucking ocean? Or, you know, in Australia or California or even on lower part of the East Coast. But, uh, need to get yourselves checked if, you're, if your piss is starting to attract great white sharks to come bite your ass. Okay, our next story talks about an Egyptian mummy. Let's see. New x-ray technique reveals clues about a 1900-year-old mummy. I wonder if this is ten, uh, I wonder if this is uh, something, uh, something on King Tut. Scientists have pioneered a new technique that allows them to investigate the insides of a 1900-year-old mummy without having to open up and tamper with the ancient artifact. Uh, yeah, because that would be completely disrespectful. Researchers used a new combination of CT, computed uh, uh, tomography technology, and X-ray diffraction to reveal clues about a Roman-era Egyptian mummy, which was discovered in Hawara. I might have just uh, butchered that. Take a sh take a shot. Which is a new drinking game. If I butcher it, I'll I'll let you know how many shots to take. If I stumble more than once, I'll let you know. So keep those shot glasses and uh, alcoholic beverages handy. Okay, Hawara, Egypt. For nearly a century, Egyptian mummies have been imagined, have been imaged, not invasively with x-rays. Findings outlined in the journal of the Royal Society on Tuesday. The team of researchers described using a combination of CT scanning and X-ray defriation for the first time, revealing clues about the ancient corpse lying inside. Using a CT scan to create a three-dimensional roadmap of the contents of the mummy, experts shown, shown, or however they want to pronounce it, x-ray beams smaller than the diameter of a human hair onto the mummy to identify the objects inside the item's wrappings, lead author Stuart Stockhead 
uh, mentioned, had told CNN. The x-rays give off what is essentially a fingerprint that is characteristic of the material. Uh. What the experts from Northwestern University, Argonne National Laboratory, and Metrop- Met- uh, Metropolitan State University of Denver found on the body. Thought to belong to a five-year-old child. This uh, surprised them. Wait a minute. Was it King Tut killed as a kid? I'm thinking... I'm thinking this is about King Tut. Researchers found a, sm- a small chunk of very pure calcium carbonate in in the mummy, which they believe is the right shape to be a scarab beetle. That is, uh, those beetles are more fa- more found in Egypt. Which was traditionally placed in an incision in the abdomen during mummification. This opaque object is about the right shape for a scarab. Stock explained the scarab is the symbol of rebirth, he added, which is what people need to believe. The item gives further clues about the social status of the mummy, though not royalty. I highly doubt that. This person was in the upper uh, Killens or Chillens. I think I butchered that. Take two shots. Of society. If such a pure material was used in their burial, Stock said, they could afford to have a scarab and mummification, which required a tremendous amount of resources, he said. A study of the body also showed the child, thought to be a girl, did not suffer a violent end. It looks like there was no skeletal trauma. Stock said, okay, so this might not, okay, it's not leading to King Tut. We don't know why these, this young girl died. A portrait attached to the mummy also reveals further clues about its occupant. With the hairstyle depicted dating the mummy between 150 and 200 AD. Shit. Portrait mummies have a lifelike painting of the deceased incorporated into the mummy wrappings and placed over the person's face. Experts believe that the technique could be used for further studies on mummies, giving further clues as to the object buried alongside the ancient corpses, without the need to disturb and tamper with bodies. Let's see. I'm looking at it right here. Okay, definitely isn't a pharaoh. Back in the day, in Victorian times, they would take them apart. Yeah, that's true. Stock told CNN, we don't like like to do that anymore. Uh, back in Victorian times, they shouldn't, shouldn't have been doing that, period. 
douchebags. And that's it for that one. For a minute there, I thought I was going to. I thought it was about King Tut. Okay. This next one, uh. Talks about another another one. Divers exploring a two hundred, uh, yeah, two hundred. Take a drink, take one shot of stumbled and chug a beer, or whatever makes drink you you drink it. Divers exploring a twenty three hundred year old pyramid have found the underwater tomb of a powerful pharaoh. Okay, I'm going on a limb here. I'm wondering if that they're talking about Cleopatra. Due to fact, that's one of the theories. Although the water looks unappealing. Okay, Kristen Romy, a Rome, might have butchered it. Two shots. Prefers herself. Prepares herself to plunge into the depths. And right above her head, there's a big clue as to why she is putting herself through this ordeal. In this part, in the in a part of the broiling north of Sudan, of Sudan, you see there's a pyramid, a monument to a long lost monarch, that hints as a kingdom that once held sway over vast swat. Uh, swaths of northern Af northern Africa, and when Rome, a Rome, and her colleague re reached their destination, what they found is truly astonishing. Let's see how astonishing it is. Impress me. But then again, it could be Cleopatra, or whatever. Let's see. The pair know where they should be heading to. A man's tomb lies beneath this pyramid, although he wasn't just any man. Nastasin was once a pharaoh of Nubia, and he was buried here more than 2,000 years ago. Now Romy, or Rome, a trained archaeologist, moves down a stairway etched into the rock. All she has, all she has for air, sh uh, should there be an emergency, is a tiny uh, canister. Okay, come on. God damn it. Next page, thank you. Waiting for Romy or Rome at the base of the stairway is Pierce Paul Kreisman, another archaeologist who is working with a grant with a grant from National Geographic. Oh. Okay, so when did National Geographic start doing grants? He greets his colleague, however, with some words of caution, saying it's really deep today. There's not going to be any headroom in the first chamber. Indeed, Kreisman himself is already up to his chest in the murky waters. 
Come on. Only weeks earlier, Creaseman had first penetrated. That's what he said. The to the flooded tomb of Nestasin. Now he and Rome, Rome, will go down into the three chambers together, and investigate a sarcophagus that it seems has laid untouched through the centuries. Before the duo reach their goal, though, Kriesman shows Romy, Rome, a metal crate, a metal grate, and tells her that she'll have to squeeze, that's what he said, that's what she said, through an opening that small to enter the catacomb. Opening and it, opening and it, uh, going into something that small. That's what he said and she said. The tomb that ha that the two archaeologists are exploring lies at Nuri, a site that stretches over nearly two hundred acres of land. Nuri is also fairly close to the River Nile's east bank. Which is itself insist ins insu uh insuated. Take a drink and stump take a take three shots of stumbled three times. Somewhere north of Sudan Sudan's capital Khartoum. And if I butchered that one shot and a glass of beer or a glass of mixed drink, whatever you, whatever your uh, delight is for drinking. And the area is arguably best known for housing around 20 pyramids that were all constructed from 650 BC. Actually, they got the damn. They got the uh, centuries backwards, so I'm gonna say it this way. Twenty pyramids that were all constructed from 300 BC to 650 BC. That makes more sense. The base of Nestasin's. Pyramid, meanwhile, is a hundred foot square that rests on a middle on a small area of level ground. But although the tomb is a mile from the river, over time it's become prone to flooding by groundwater. As a consequence, then, the three chambers at the Pharaoh's final resting place all sliced into the stone beneath the desert sands are commonly are currently submerged but of course Nestasin's pyramid is just one of the many examples of Nuri while the towering structures themselves a part of a greater complex that is initially built under the, the 
Nepotin culture. Nepotin, yeah, close enough. The pyramids are also located in the dry regions of either side of the Nile that were once part of Nubia. And these imposing buildings, although with others in the region, display elements of art and architecture that are unique to the area around Nuri. Owing to this uniqueness then, the pyramids and other locations in the area were collectively classified as a World Cultural Heritage Site by UNESCO in 2003. And the nearby mountain of Gebel Barkel that's how I'm saying it, because that's how it's spelled, is significant not only to local residents, but also to those who lived millennia before them. You see, at one time, the people of Egypt considered the mountain to be the home of the god Amon, which is an Egyptian god, in case people are wondering what the fuck I just said. Amon is an Egyptian god. Naturally, the pyramids are important too. No shit. Representing as they do the last resting places of the Kushite. Bless you. Um, that's how it's actually spelled. Kushite. Bless you. Kings and their queens. Okay, this is a little racy, ain't it? These black pharaohs. Wow. Uh, pharaohs in Egypt were not, unless I'm, that's taking me to a really, to a different fucking part. Every, anything that I heard or learned about in high school about Egypt and pharaohs from my history teacher, LaForge, he, he mentioned that the pharaohs were even though the pharaohs are, are uh, some pharaohs are found with basically like black, it it basically doesn't mean oh their their skin was black. These again black pharaohs were initially underlinings to the Egyptian emperors. Once the new kingdom had fallen apart. However, they began to rise in importance. In fact, from roughly 700, 760 BC, the Kushites began to control the whole part of Egypt. And they worked to put their stamp on their territory too. In particular, the five black pharaohs looked to the past for inspiration and building pyramids just as their distant predecessors had done to mark the graves were among the old customs that they subsequently chose to revive. More than 80 royals were interred at Nuri in all 
with about one in four of their graves crowned by pyramids. And in July 2019, Kriesman explained the historical importance of the Kushites in the BBC, to the BBC. The Kushites were on the only corridor across the Sahara where you could pass through the desert in sight of drinking water the whole way. In other words, you're walking on it and you could see the Nile. So that put them in a very important position, he said. This predates the arrival of the ca of the camel. No shit! If you're a pharaoh of a or of a royal pharaoh, you're riding in a chariot operated by a horse. Or you're, you're riding a fucking horse. And I don't mean the freaking sex position, the horse. After first rising to power in 2000 BC, Kush's influence waxed and waned, although the kingdom's production of gold meant that the region could never be ignored. And while the so-called black pharaohs were chased out of Egypt by the Neo-Assyrians in the 7th century BC, they nonetheless continued to rule over their desert land until the 4th century AD when their reign came to, the et to an end. Royal burials at Nurei Meanwhile, are thought to have been initiated by the pharaoh Takura Taherka Herqua. However, I stumbled four times. Have a fucking shot. Or here, have a drink. With his pyramid remaining the biggest in the area, the Taharqua's descendants continued to use the area as a necropolis for many years. Others utilized the site for the same purpose too. Even after Kosh or Kush take a shot had vanished into the sands. If you know okay, here we go. If you know the Bible Bible the uh, Taherqua's, take a drink, I stumble. Taherqua's name may ring a bell. Not really. Not that I gave a damn. Not, and I still don't give a damn. As the second book of Kings tells the story of a man warding off an Assyrian attack on Jerusalem, that battle ultimately ended in such a crushing victory for Taherqua. In fact, that Egypt, as well as Kosh, the Kush, subsequently enjoyed a lengthy period of peace. And with no fighting to focus on, the Pharaoh was then able to turn his attention to, build, to building works. Basically, 
having buildings uh, constructed. But while Tahirqua's pyramid at Nureyev resembles its Egyptian counterparts quite closely, there is one clear distinction. Whereas the Egyptian pharaohs were buried inside their pyramids, the Kushite kings lie underneath theirs, and excavating the Kushites' burial chambers would therefore prove more difficult for archaeologists, as they would be re required to dig into the rock to the bedrock or rock bed beneath the structures. That's a whole lot of digging. The first man to attempt the task was George Griesner, an American archaeologist who specialized in Egypt and its buried history. His vast knowledge and fine judgment had led to him being hailed as an authority of the ancient civilization that had once flourished in the North African nation. And before tackling Nure, Reisner had actually once dug at Giza, the famous home of the Great Pyramid. So, Reisner, Reisner came to Nuri, excuse me, burp, in the early 20th century to dig into Tahirqua's burial chambers. At the same time, the Egyptologist drew maps of the other structures in the area. He made another important discovery at the location to boot, namely the groundwater fed by the Nile would prove a huge barrier to further investigation of the site. However, Reisner didn't even bother publishing the outcome of his studies at Nuray. With the, the knock-on effect, oh, I like that one, the knock-on effect, being that the site didn't receive the attention that it might otherwise have been given. It seems, too, that Reisner had considered the Kushite kings to not be the equals of the Egyptians from a racial standpoint. I beg your pardon. Nor did he see their buildings as anything other than imitations of earlier glories. Okay, so this fucker's a blasphemist. And despite the 1922 discovery of the burial site of King Tut, I'm sa I'm saying it, saying it the way it's all been taught to me because I know I can't pronounce that shit. Discovery of the burials of the burial site of King Tut, earning global attention. But you still don't know how to, how he died so young. Ure continued to remain relatively unexplored. It didn't help, perhaps, that the large site offered formidable challenges to our archaeologists. 
Many of the tombs were potentially submerged. You see, an underwater archaeology hadn't even been tried in Sudan yet. So, it wasn't until 2018 that an archaeologist with the required skills would turn his attention to Nurei. Kriesman has the experience in underwater archaeology, sure he does, that Riesner lacked along with a keen knowledge of Egyptian studies. His talents don't end there either as he also works in the field of dendrochronology the study of of tree rings okay what the hell does that have to do with the pharaoh and from his home base at the University of Arizona Kriesman's interests in ancient Egypt and Sudan have led him to run a research program in both of those countries. The college's Egyptian expedition has operated since the late 1980s, in fact, largely in Thebes and the Valley of the Kings. Kriesman's work in the field, moreover, has led to recognition from notable bodies such as the Royal Geographical Society. I don't know if that's even... I don't know. When Kriesman came to Nurei, then he decided to look at the tomb of Nestasin, who was king of Kosh, or Kush, between 315 BC and 335 BC as the final ruler to have his tomb at the site. Nestasin had ended up with the least attractive plot of land, although that currently didn't put Kriesman off. Instead, the archaeologists figured that checking out Nestasin's burial spot would prove ideal in determining just how waterlogged other structures in the area may be. Uh, Nestasin had ruled towards the end of the Napatin or Napatin take four shots culture with, with the center of Nubian power shifting shortly after his passing in Meru or Miru I might have butchered that two shots and half a drink. That, cha- that change would, in turn, ultimately bring on conflict between the, the Nepotin house and other would-be royals over control of Kosh. And that turmoil stood in marked contrast to Nestasin's reign, as his power across a massive region had stayed strong. Indeed, Nestasin had demonstrated that control when an Egyptian king named uh, Habash attacked Kosh, 
the ambush didn't end well for Kabash either. With the Nebian forces repulsing him and his men and relieving him of a great deal of his treasure and naval forces. And although Nastasin himself is a somewhat obscure figure, there's a reason why historians today know a bit about this conflict. I highly doubt it. If they're whining and complaining, oh, we can't get to it. You see, Nestasin had a five-foot-high stella, a, a granite monument, made after his win over Kabash. Likely once an adornment of the Temple of Amman at Gibel Barkel. The Stella later turned up in the city of Dongula, which lies by the Nile in northern Sudan. And the stone is marked, too, with the most recent examples of Egyptian hieroglyph hieroglyphs. I actually could say that. To have yet been discovered, this message celebrates the Black Pharaoh's triumph. Very little else has been discovered about Nistasin, however. And if anyone wants to find more, they'll need to dive into the tomb. But that in itself is easier said than done. In the time since Reasoner's expedition, the water level at the site has risen dramatically. No shit! It's underwater! That said, Reasoner's workers were at least able to discover a stairway, not stairway to heaven, but stairway down, into Nistasin's tomb. And after the, after the group dug the flight out, one of the group even managed to get down into the crypt. The lucky man in question spent his time there digging a hole and grabbing a few shabits, shabtis, statues supposedly imbued with magic that were meant to look after the dead in the next life. Apparently, however, that's all the worker had time for. Before too long, Reisner's team had gone, and the tomb soon, di soon disappeared back under the desert. When Kreisman came to Nuray, then, his first task would be to uncover the stairway once again. And that proved quite a job, taking up a whole year's worth of digging. It wasn't until January 2019, in fact, that Kreisman's expedition got down as far as the tomb's entry point. That's what he said. But there was no cause for celebration just yet. As the team subsequently realized that this part of the burial chamber had been entirely submerged. It, me it seemed that yet more groundwater had accumulated. 
perhaps because of the climate change or the fact that dams were being built on the river. Here's something to think about. Kreisman described the digging during his interview with the BBC and noted that his, t that his team had gone as far as they could. So, while the staircase had 65 steps, the researchers had only got about 40 stairs down until they hit the water table. In other words, till they, till they hit water. Kreisman added, We, more like his team, but not we, we knew we wouldn't be able to go any further without putting our heads under. That's what he said. But even more danger lurked in the waterlogged burial area. As divers who entered the chambers risked being trapped, in, trapped if the rocks su surrounding the opening fell in. Well, yeah, there is that, that issue. With that in mind, Kreisman had to use a chute made of steel to bolster the entry space. To get into the tomb required struggling through his, this chute. And the archaeologist was rendered pr uh, practically blind as he did so with tiny uh, particles made the water impetrably murky. What do you f expect? It's a fucking river. If this wasn't bad enough, the divers couldn't even use scuba tanks to supply oxygen. Given the confined space of the entryway, these devices would simply be too unwieldy. So the explorers instead had to rely on a line that brought in air from up above when they entered the tomb in January 2019. Well, in other words, if that line breaks, you're fucked. Then, once inside the burial chamber, the divers were finally able to see the sarcophagus. The massive stone container for Nestasin's remains. But, yet again, members of the group would have to be patient, as looking inside would have to wait for another year. To pit dug long, the pit dug long ago by Reisner's teammate would have to be investigated a later, at a later date, too. Oh, that sucks. You get to the fucking sarcophagus, you can't even open it yet. <laughs> and Kreisman described Nastasa's burial area to the BBC. There were three chambers with these beautiful large ceilings about the size of a small bus. He said, you know, you go in one chamber into the next, and it's pitch black. Okay, if it's pitch black, then how the fuck do you know you're in the three chambers? Or in one of them. You know you're in a tomb if your flashlights aren't on. That makes no fucking sense. 
You know you're in a tomb if your flashlights aren't on. Uh, it should be... If you're in a tomb, your flashlights should be on. So you can fucking see! And it starts revealing the secrets that were held within. Thankfully, though, the struggle to get into the chambers proved worthwhile. As Kreisman told Newsday, the Shaptas hadn't all been taken. The gold offerings were still sitting there. That's shocking. Really shocking. These small glass-type statues that have been leafed in gold. That's basically gold that's like leaf. Not le golden leaves, but people get what I'm saying. If not, look it up. He explained, and while the water destroyed the glass underneath, the little gold flake was still there. Apparently it's true. Gold doesn't perish underwater for so long. What's more, the small tendrils of gold that the archaeologists found hinted at an interesting story. It seemed, in fact, that the water might have prevented thieves from getting into the burial chamber. After all, if they'd been able to enter, they would surely have snatched the golden statutes as a potential source of easy money. Yeah, that's true. Come on. Next page. Thank you. The discovery of gold leaf shouldn't come as too, as too much of a surprise, though. After all, Kosh was one of the antiquities' great centers of gold production. The Kushite artisans not only wrought jewelry, in other words, not only made jewelry, but they also clothed places of worship and figurines with gold leaf. And that's real gold leaf. And the gold trade brought riches to the nation, meaning Kosh could hold some sway in its neighbor Egypt's politics. Some years prior to Kreisman's expedition, meanwhile, archaeologists had dug up a site in northern Sudan that they believed had been crucial to Kosh's gold industry. There, the researchers found stones that could have been used to crush gold or, that's O-R-E, to release, to release flakes of the precious metal. There's little doubt, though, that more remains to be discovered at Nuray. Indeed, if Kreisman's team do succeed in their aim to dig out Nastasin's uh, tomb, it, which would have uh, been la in, shit, in the shit year last year, the entire shit year, which they haven't, obviously, they may well find untouched treasures that were once buried alongside the pharaoh. 
And who knows what may lie inside the sarcophagus that sits in the third chamber. Uh, it would be the, the pharaoh's fucking waterlogged dead body. Kreisman has aspirations for his dig. I'm sure he does. In any case, and he revealed these to National Geographic. I think we finally have the technology to be able to tell the story of Nurey. To fill in the blanks of what happened here. He said, it's a remarkable point in history that so few know about. It's a story that deserves to be told. Uh... Ah! The thing just went stupid. And, yeah, that's it. So, here's the thing. They're able to get past two of the three chambers. The third chamber holds the body. Uh, I'm trying to think here because I might have just had a brain fart. Uh, say, okay, uh, putting this question out there for the listeners and to Paramike. Say this guy could get into the third chamber and they're able to get, actually get to the Pharaoh's tomb and possibly maybe open it or bring it up. One, how the fuck are they going to do that? And two, are they going to take the fucking gold that's still there? Because there is something federally where you can't bring in foreign objects into the U.S. That includes if it's gold or not. Mm-hmm. Unless if you work for fucking uh, Scott Ridley or uh, Ripley. Who that's Robert Ripley. Huh? Robert Ripley. Okay, Ripley uh, bringing all sorts of everything from the fucking foreign countries, including the Egyptian goddess, Egyptian priestess foot. Yeah, uh, that's going through a lot of customs, the government, and I think, if I'm correct, the National Geological Science Survey Group. Yeah. I think. I said that right. I'm not sure. Uh Uh-huh. But I think that's how that works. I think that's what Robert Ripley from, uh, believe it or not, Museum in California had to do with uh, the stuff that he has. Yeah, I know. But before then, all the other stuff that he had in there that we've seen on Ghost Adventures were brought in without that problem. No. Other things, yes. I think the Egyptian foot was one of them. I don't know. I can't remember. Well, yeah. The Egyptian foot of the priestess that Zach was holding... And empath-wise, he was able to see the image of her mm-hmm. with his mo- with his third eye. Yep. Which I'm surprised it took that many seasons for his third eye to open. <laughs> Even though he was an em- he's been an empath. The 
Even though there's customs and other shit like that. If you're... If you... Uh, if it's like archaeology, I think there are some uh, leadways through that. But the way he, the, guy, the guys explain how he wants to raise the tomb or the sarcophagus with the body in it and whatever gold or treasures that are with it, that's, in my opinion, that's pretty much grave robbing. What do you think? Yeah, I would say that. I definitely would say that. And those who like actually got, get off doing that or got off doing that. You are some sick motherfuckers. Yeah. I'm taking say. a break because I need a smoke break. Uh. Ooh. Clark Road Mental Facility. Verbal Legends, that sounds cool. Huh? Wait a minute. I was doing something else and everything. Huh? I said I was doing something else outside of having a phone call, which I'm doing multiple stuff today. Uh-huh. Uh, no, actually, the next one is Lies and Fireflies. Oh, I thought you yeah. already read that one. No. I oh, was okay. about go to, ahead. and you stopped me so you could do your stories. Okay, go ahead. All right, so we're going to go we're back to Urban Legends with Lies and Fireflies from December of 2011. There was once a young girl who constantly lied about everything. Yeah, she must have been a Republican. Actually, that's almost like the story about the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. <laughs> must have been a Republican. She sprinkled lies into everything she said. She lived with her widowed grandma and helped her to make money by sewing clothes and selling them. Seamstress. That's one hell of an old seamstress. As she cared for her granddaughter, the woman became aware of the child's lying problem, and no matter what her grandmother said or how much she was scolded or punished, the little girl refused to change her ways. Definitely a fucking Republican, bitch. Thinking... Are actually uh, people uh, that we've come across from over the years. Yeah. Avis. To my ex-best friend. To practically almost everybody in the goddamn planet. Not you, bro. Get that thought out of your head. Thinking it was just a childhood phase, the old woman hoped her granddaughter would grow out of it and stop lying so much. One day, the child accidentally lost her grandma's sewing supplies under the floorboards and refused to even try to get them back. Ugh. Grandma had had enough. She was outraged and tried a new... Uh, I'm sorry. Take a drink. I fucked up. She was outraged and, and tired and knew the girl would eventually be the death of her. Huh. 
the night that night grandma grandma put tranquilizers in her granddaughter's dessert and <laughs> sent her to bed whoa grandma got a little sneaky there little medieval genius the last thing she remembered as the medication began to take effect was seeing fireflies flickering outside her bedroom window while the girl wa- while the girl was slept doesn't make any sense grandma took her bits of spare sewing supplies and used them to stitch her granddaughter's mouth clothes in her sleep <laughs> oh that's really medieval torture right there not only that that um, if you want to talk colonial witch witch days which I still fucking hate I know it would, it would actually consider the grandmother being a witch mm. just as she tied off the final stitch the woman had a massive heart attack and died at the child's bedside. <laughs> Damn! Instant karma. Now, any kid under the age of 12 who lies profusely will be found by the young girl's grandmother. You'll dream of fireflies and she'll bring her sewing kit with her. When you wake up, your mouth will be stitched closed. And that comes from a JJ. <laughs> but other than that, it doesn't say where it's from. Anonymous, probably. That's probably just a story, but not really considered an urban legend. No, but I was thinking it as I was reading it and thinking it in my head. I was like, holy crap, this, this grandmother is fucking medieval to this little bitch that's a Republican. Well, nice. That's a hell of a payback. Well, here's actually something of, you know, myth, but as well as... Um, Conspiracy theory? No. It's sort of like between myth and magic. And I, I don't mean like freaking illusion magic. I mean... Real magic. Real magic. Which is actually spelled M-A-G-I-C-K. If you're seeing fireflies after even lying or something like that, here's the thing. You sure you're not seeing sprites. Mm. Sprites are a way of of doing that. Good point. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think of that part. Hmm. Well, far as I remember, my nephew Adam, uh, I believe he was like nine. And he was like, he was lying he was doing lies here and there but after after a time it got so bad he started freaking uh freaking out saying he's seeing sprites in his room uh me paramike his father alex and richie were sitting in the living room he used to come and tell us about it but we kind of just like blocked it out like yeah sure until all four of us saw, heard him fucking screaming. And in case... Uh, Paramike, 
Alex and Richie didn't grab a damn thing, but they went to went to his room. Adam's sister is standing outside the room. She's petrified. And seeing her looking like that, I'm like, okay, there's something there. Go into my room. I mean, I don't know why, but at the time I did do some tennis. But not on a, on a sport level. Just with my father. Because my father, his way of community, uh, family time, you either golf or you do tennis. I don't like camping. I never have. Being homeless, I understood why. I didn't like tennis, but it was actually kind of funny seeing his chubby ass trying to run across the court. <laughs> Which pair Mike saw a couple of times. Holy flubber! So, I grabbed my tennis racket. Run into my nephew's room, and I'm actually seeing, like, little lights dancing around. A couple of them were actually, and, I mean, even though they were dancing around, he had bruises all over him. Actual cuts. And I went, okay, I'm actually going to practice my backhand. So if you see a sprite, and you've got an object that can knock the fuckers out uh, across the room or out of the room, grab it. Because <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> Yeah, and a few times you've hit me and Alex with the damn thing. Sorry. <laughs> I want to shove the damn thing up your rear end, but. Well, uh, well, there a... was one. T I did. I think I remember hitting Richie too, but he was too close. <laughs> he got it right in the fucking nuts. <laughs> no, that was Alex. Oh, got Alex in the nuts. Yes, because Richie was on the other side of the room at the time. Because <laughs> when he saw you hit me. With the damn racket, and you hit Alex with the damn racket. He went to the other side of the room, like, nope, I'm not getting hit by that racket. <laughs> and two seconds later, ding! Right below the belt, Alex <laughs> drops to the floor. I'm looking and everything. I'm like, holy crap! I have a big bruise on my arm from you smacking me with it. So, well, the fuckers were fast. I wanted to I rip the thing out that. of her hand and stick it up her rear end. They were fast. I can tell you that. Yeah, I, now, know. I don't know. They could have been fireflies, but. Uh, the bleeding that he had on him, I didn't look. They didn't look like fireflies. Yeah, I know. All right, so now we're get. Now we can go into the Clark Road Mental Facility. That sounds cool. <laughs> this was December two thousand eleven. Uh, we start off with Emily was a beautiful woman who lived at the Clark Road Mental Facility in Sarasota, Florida. Since she was Sarasota, seven years Florida? old. Yeah. Where the hell is that located? Um, I think it's anywhere between Dayton. Huh? I think it's like Dayton, somewhere, somewhere near Dayton, Ohio, uh, Florida, the or Daytona, Florida. I, I mean, Everybody I remember. I mean, I remember wrestling all over the place in Florida, but I don't remember that one. Mm. Unless it was just like a quick here. Hi, how you doing? I don't know. Um, I could look that up afterwards. Seven years old, admitted there by her parents, who knew Emily 
to be disturbed at a young age. Well, anybody's going to be disturbed at the age of seven. Shit. That's part of life growing up. It's probably a mental health condition. Well, at that time, you wouldn't even know. Yeah, I know. Because Dr. Jerkoffs, without thinking maybe there's mental health, mental health illness. Yeah. And try to find a way, a positive way to treat it. Treat it. Yeah. But you wouldn't take it to a mental facility on Clark Road. You go, that's what's called, what therapists are called back, were for back then. Yeah. But they didn't go to them. No. She since was a long time resident. Hers was a life well known. That's how I'm reading it because there's a dot after resident. (laughs) Fucking people. She had long, river like marble white hair. She had white hair. Before I go on that, how does somebody have river like marble white hair? Probably like the col- uh the color of like foam, which is white. Yeah, I know that, but river like marble white hair. That there's no such color for a human being's hairstyle. Oh, there is. You I gotta cannot, go to specific. I uh, can understand, you know, like a countertop being like that, which I've seen. Yeah, so have I. You know, marble or granite style. I've seen those two types. But not in a human hair. That's just ridiculous and not possible. Uh, That was barely tinted blonde and dark. If you heard a sneeze, that was one of our cats. He was putting his two cents in. Yeah. His sneeze said, Bullshit! I agree with daddy. (laughs) Um, B-E-C-K-O-N-I-N-G-I's. I have no clue what the word that word is. Another drinking part of the game. If Paramike has to spell out a word, four shots and half the drink you're drinking. This patient was difficult to say no to. If she wanted extra food at the cafeteria, so be it. No drugs that day. She got it. She was character disturbed. Probably personality disorder. One of the documented symptoms of being charming. And she was being carefully watched because of her condition. And the word charming is in parentheses. Okay, that could le- that could mean uh, personality disorder, or multiple per- multiple personality disorder. She was just a cute kid. Who knows? Or suicidal. Her conditions were many, including. Okay, I could definitely not say this goddamn word. Spell it. S C H, I Z O P, H R, E N. I A. You don't have to take a drink for that because medical terms, I do not know it. Schizophrenia. Thank you. And multiple personality disorder. Oh, there's Did the MPD. Did I just MPD. say that? <laughs> there's the MPD. Holy shit. I just shit. said that. <laughs> Holy crap. So, so she's a psycho and with MPD. Okay. 
I mean that the word I, I had to spell out. Um, I know the version of that. Yeah. Is that um, people are usually death, deathly afraid of things that are not there. Nah, schizophrenia uh, has many different definitions now. Oh yeah, but, but schizophrenia. I'm, I'm going to the the main part. The, but the first main part, one before the other ones came out from goofy doctors that still don't know shit. Well, schizophrenia um, before there were considered really mul- real multiple personality traits or personality disorders. Mm-hmm. Schizophrenia, which was taught, which was also taught in my psychology class. Thanks, LaForge. Was basically one personality disorder. Now, if you kind of want an example, me, myself, Irene, with Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, schizo, because his personality would change to sweet and nice to a jerk off. That's basically what schizophrenia. What what schizophrenia is? You have one personality disorder. <laughs> Not multiple. <laughs> well, that's that version. But like I said, the version I said is that you're paranoid of something that's not even there. And that's what people will call you. But now there's so many different terminologies to it in doctor's terms. It could be multiple stuff. Yeah. On top of being MPD. Yep. The fire that closed down the mental institution was set by one of Emily's alter egos. (laughs) Then, at age 32, she had attempted to escape the asylum after by hiding out during the evacuation of the building. She died in the fire that day. So near to her escape and never made it out. It is thought her spirit lives there still, but wanders the entire Sarasota area. Uh, Minnesota? No, Florida. Oh. I wonder if Zach and them has heard about that. I don't or if think Dave so. Schrader heard, about, heard of it. Mm. Um, That's like something I would love to see on, our, on one of their shows. Oh, yeah. Well, there <laughs> is uh, a YouTube video clip here that, okay. that I see. But. There's underneath it is kind of blanked out. It has like a line through it. It says, yeah. "Repost this in the next 12 minutes, or she'll fly to your location and haunt you at your bedside the next time you're being th- treated for anything. She'll scream her name, Emily." Quotations. Five times in your ear. Your ears will ring and you'll beg for your doctor to fix it. It disappears after 72 hours. And this came from Sarasota, Florida and Sedona, Arizona. Hmm. And I see the video here and everything. It's probably just, that definitely does sound like an urban legend. With the post a video in 12 minutes. Yeah. That sounds like the urban legend of it, but the rest of it, or most of it, it sounds like it's a ghost story. Yeah, but like I said, there is a video here. It says Clark, uh, Clark Road Mental Facility 
um, in bracket, uh, little side brackets. Yeah. It says palms of, uh, of something else, but the whole thing's not here, and I can't play it because sometimes uh, my software to internet, it gets a little goofy. So I'll try to throw that in um, somewhere on our YouTube video if I can do it, which will be great. Yeah. Uh, okay, next up is <clears throat> Choking on Ink. Sound like a bad song from the 50s or 60s, if it ever was. Uh, well, we're still in December of 2011, goes, my grandmother told me when she was in high school, an old math teacher in his 60s named Harold Davidson was teaching math and one of his students wouldn't stop tapping his pen during class. Those are the persons you just want to beat the shit out of. You know? Yeah. The teacher went berserk. And lost his mind. Well, nowadays, you, uh, you, you have to have a mind to lose. Yeah. Except nobody has that anymore. He snatched the pen and attacked the kid, lodging the pen down the child's throat while his classmates looked in screaming. Or on screaming. Looked on screaming. Okay. I was about to say. While struggling, the kid kicked the teacher in the chest with the little energy he had left. The teacher collapsed and they both died at the same time. If... Well, oh. you know that teacher's uh, what the hell. So then the uh, kid. When school was back in session and math class began with the new teacher... The class noticed that a weird symbol appeared on the chalkboard. The symbol had lines inside of a circle. Uh-huh. Hold on. Uh, I'm tired of that phone call coming in. I keep getting a phone call that I keep blocking, and they, for some reason, keeps finding a way to call me. All the lines within the circle were the common math symbols equal, plus, x, and division. If you outline certain parts of the symbol, it looks as if a Pac-Man shape was a line going through the mouth, through its mouth, or maybe a head getting choked with a pen. Now that is kind of weird. Yeah. The teacher asked who drew it, but no one came forward. The teacher laughed it off and t tried to erase it off the board, but she couldn't remove the mark. Ah. Uh. Now that's even weirder. Yeah. Equal plus X and the division sign, which is dot, line, dot. Yeah. But then it wouldn't erase off the chalkboard. 
What kind of stuff did they use to put on the chalkboard like that? I don't know. It doesn't come off. It's nuts. But also a mystery. She decided to live with it and ignored it for months. But since maintenance couldn't even remove the symbol, she began to get annoyed. Eventually, she got the whole chalkboard replaced. Well, there's a smart move. As the students arrived for their next math lesson, they were shocked to find the new teacher dead, laying in the exact same spot where Harold died. The autopsy found the teacher had a pen shoved down her throat. Holy shit. What freaking high school was this at, I would like to know. Because I want to do some more stories on that one. And, of course, it's an anonymous story. Yeah. So, for that, it is a mystery. I should look more into it. And if you guys want to look into it as well... Please do, and then email the show at everythingparanormal2021 at gmail.com, and I'll read what you found on the show the next time. And a shout-out. Definitely a shout-out. This new story kind of sounds interesting. Ancient mysteries that may never be solved. Hang on. Our ancestors built many amazing cities and temples and carved so much fascinating artwork but often the methods and reasons behind what they did have been lost in the midst of time that sounds really interesting oh okay okay this tasks okay what do the karnic stones signify Perry Mike just gave me the what are these uh, megaliths the uh, petrified remains of a Roman legion turned to stone by the wizard Merlin? So local legend would have us believe, but the truth could be just as fascinating. Near the village of Carnac in uh, Brittany, northern France, a vast area of a th- of a hundred acres, basically forty HA, whatever that's supposed to mean, holds around three thousand standing stones, marching into the distance as far as the eye can see. Some stones are placed in uh, regimented lines, others in circles. It's some on top of another to form tombs. These stone armies were the work of a Neolith, Neolithic people dating from dating between 3000 to 4500 BC. It's an amazing testament to the ingenuity of this pre preclectic people that they could hew the granite by hand, drag the stones up to 30 miles, 
that's 50 kilometers. And placed him so accurately. Even more surprising when you consider the megaliths vary in size, with the tallest around 21 feet, which is 6, 6.5 uh, millimeters. So why do these early people did these early people go to so much trouble? Historians and scientists have long puzzled over the per over the purpose of these stones. One researcher claims they were an earthquake detection device. I'm going to say that again. A researcher claims they were an earthquake detention device. I don't know what how stones uh, can detect earthquakes. While others say they are temples to honor the ancestors. Or some kind of calendar or astrologic. Uh, I'm about to butcher it. Get ready to find out how many shots. The astrolog astrological. Yep, two shots. Device. Of course, their use could have changed over the over the thousand years they were arranged. So perhaps we will never know for sure. What is certain that is certain is that they are an awe-inspiring sight. Now, looking at the stones, and I'm looking at them, they look more like they're grave markers, just the way they're positioned. Paramite, come here. Let me show you. Okay. Here's the first picture of these stones. They, to me, they kind of look like they're gravestones. Here's this one. Now, no human can fucking make that. I don't give a fuck. And here's the other one. In a different line. Weird. Not well. Then again, there are some theories about Merlin actually being actually, actually existing at one point in time, even though that's considered myth, and some consider it a legend. But let's move on. What happened to the people of Angkor Wat? And I'm going to say that again. Ang Angkor Wat. In 1860, a French, French explorer, Henry Muhat, was hacking his way through the Cambodian jungle when he suddenly came upon a, mag a magnificent temple hidden up among the trees. Only a few Buddhist priests and farmers lived there, and they knew nothing of its history. Over the years, historians have pieced together the story of a great empire which dominated the area from around 800 to 1400 AD. So why was Ag uh, Agkor Wat located near modern 
CM Reap. Left to decline in the 15th century. Uh, holy shit. It, it's big, but not that big. That's what he said. And what she said. We know the temple was only a small part of a, of a giant city. It was populated by Hindu native people, the the Hamir, or Kamir, that's K-H-M-E-R. I don't think I butchered it, but if I did, one shot, and, the, and drink the other half of what you were drinking. The main temple was linked by, was linked by cloisters and stairways and decorated with images of battles and legends written in, uh, written in Sanskrit, or, uh, yeah, Sanskrit. Nope, I butchered that twice. Two shots and some more half a glass. Sanskrit. That's what I meant to say. These legends tell of mighty kings, revered as gods, who built these enormous structures. Satellite imagery also shows that the rest of the city, now under the jungle, contained hundreds of simpler houses, paddy fields, and interconnecting ca canals. The city's demise was swift. In the 15th century, battles with the Vietnamese and Thai people, as T-H-A-I, proved devastating for the Khmer. From other factors may have come into play too. Did a switch of Hinduism to Buddhism mean the Khmer stop believing the king was a god thus causing a lack of unity they did cut did they cut down too too much jungle and perhaps the paddy fields to split up and so denude their food resource we don't know but 1450 by 1450 and core had become had almost become a ghost town. That's a bit interesting. Okay. I know I'm going to be butchering this, so get your shot glasses and your gla drink glasses ready. Is Gobikli to pay the Garden of Eden? Yeah, I'm pretty sure everybody's heard Garden of Eden from the fucking Bible. Not trashing it, I'm just saying. My language. The Great Pyramids are 4,500 years old, while Stonehenge is 300 years older. I mean, Stonehenge is 500 years older. Okay. I don't know why that don't make sense, but it doesn't. Impressive, but imagine a city that is 7,000 years older than that. Gubekli Tepe, the modern-day Turkey, in modern-day Turkey, was built 12,000 years ago. 
around the end of the last Ice Age. And I'm not talking the goddamn movies. Which are good fucking movies. Probably gotta find those. This fact breaks all the rules that humans had to be settled farmers in order to create cities. Gobekli Tepe was built so early in human adventure uh, endeavor that it has led some to speculate that this could even be the site of the Garden of Eden. Okay, I'm seeing a photo of what looks like to be a lizard and some weird looking animal. While mammoths and saber-toothed tigers still roamed the earth, these prehistoric people were constructing elaborate temples decorated with beautiful carvings. Located high on a ridge in southeastern Turkey, the site is huge. That's what he said. Okay, here's a game between me and Paramike. If I, if I say that's what he said, you go for the other verse. That's what she said. To prove what I'm saying, I'm going to say this again. Located high on a ridge in southeastern Turkey, the site is huge. That's what she said. That's what he said. With only a small part excavated so far, there are 30... There are 30... Bleh. Take a drink twice to stumbled. Two shots. Chug. There are 43 monolithic limestone pillars with stone walls possibly forming temples. The area was probably forested and temperature in those days and temperate in those days so people lived as hunger gatherers hunter gatherers i don't know why i'm having a hard time reading today but who's but with some people having to learn from home like you know remote learning and even some kids if you're if your parents think you're old enough to hear it comes out of our mouths if you let them watch horror movies, you can let them hear what comes out of our mouths. Just be a parent. You can't say what they say. Does actually... Does actually help that we... Does actually... Kind of help uh, us make some his, uh, historian teachers and uh, professors look stupid. This amazing site was built before the use of the wheel. No shit. Cloth, metal tools, fire, po pottery, and domesticated animals. Okay, if that's the case, then everything's fucking smooth as hell. But then again... If you don't have the wheel, cloth, or metal tools, fire, pottery, or domesticated animals, use mud. So what it so could it be the Garden of Eden, 
as mentioned in the book of Genesis? That's a question there. The Bible makes no mention of a built of built structures in the garden. And it claims Adam and Eve were banished and were not allowed to return. So could not have so could not have built anything later. Nevertheless, the extreme age of Gobekli Tepe must make it the oldest human site yet discovered. Possibility. Why is the Bent Pyramid this shape? That's what he said. <laughs> That's what he said! Shmigle, get out of here. We all know what pyramids should look like. A large square base with straight lines rising up to a perfect point. So what do we make of this early Egyptian period that slopes two-thirds of the way towards the top? There's a question. Built during the reign of the pharaoh Snifru, the Bent Pyramid, that's what he said, gives us vital clues as to how these ancient tombs were first constructed. It has a square base and is about 345 feet. That's 100 That's 105 millimeters or 105 miles tall and with two inter internal compartments connected by a narrow corridor. The outside view shows the lower part of the pyramid was constructed in the usual style but something happened to make the builders abruptly change the angle of the slope perhaps the sudden death of the person the tomb was built for meant the builders had to finish quickly or the collapse of another pyramid being built at the same time made the builders aware of a flaw in the design. Or was it just a prototype? A way of learning valuable lessons on the way to the later pyramid masterpieces? That's actually a pretty good question. What is the meaning of the Pictish stones? That's P-I-C-T-I-S-H. Hundreds of mysterious freestanding stones carved the enigmatic, enigmatic, yeah, enigmatic, and stylistic symbols could be found all over Scotland from the Western Isles to the East. Basically, I'm going to say that again. The symbols can be found all over Scotland. Scotland. From the Western Isles to the East, they date from 900 to 500 AD, and no one knows for sure what the symbols represent. Some are clearly animals and birds, real or imagined, while others are everyday objects such as combs or mirrors, 
are objects of unknown meaning. But the same strange symbols are repeated again and again. The Pictish people who inhabited the, the land north of Hadrian's Wall before the Scots were a mysterious were as mysterious to history as the stones they carved. They had no writing system that we know of, so we could only guess what the drawings mean. Around 50 symbols come up repeatedly and generally are placed in pairs. There are salmon, deer, geese, and fantastical monsters. Objects include a crescent and V-Rod. That's what he said. You're cute, dear. That's what she said, too. A comb and mirror and a double disc with a Z-Rod. That's what he said. That's what she said! The stones may be markers of territory, or they may be or they may be tombstones, with the symbols representing married couples or clans. The stones might even be political statements opposing the growth of the new religion of Christianity. Well, that's a little bit of hate there, ain't it? Maybe the symbols were some kind of writing that we cannot interpre interpret. Probably. Perhaps we will never know their meaning, nor the lies behind their mysterious creators. That's interesting. Okay. <coughs> what was the purpose of the plane of jars? That's jars. As in, you know, you see a jar, you open it. Imagine the flat, grassy landscape. In other words, envisualize it. Envisualize, which I'm ad-libbing, the flat, grassy landscape of central Laos and an ancient area called Zangkuang. I think I just sprained something. Take a shot. Province. Which was most recently ravaged by bombs during the Vietnam War. You will be amazed to see thousands of huge stone jars. Some up to 10 feet. 3 millimeters. And 3 feet 1, one millimeter tall. Or wide. Yeah, why scattered randomly across the plane? What are these jar what are these jars for? And who made them? And why are they there? Is the question. They are thought to date from the Iron Age. From five hundred BC to five hundred AD. And research in the 1930s uncovered human skeletal remains and artifacts including beads, ceramics, iron implements, and bronze jewelry 
among other relics. The jars are mostly empty, with only occasional objects found inside, and they possibly once had lids made up made of perishable materials. Maybe they are funeral urns ooh, or memorials to the dead. Or maybe they were used to hold water. To hold hot water. Or hold water. What are the two? How were these jars, some weighing 30 tons, transported from their quarry about 5 miles, eight, which is 8 kilometers away? Were they carved out of the quarry, then rolled to their resting place? This area is still being excavated, but it seems there are many other, many more places which hold these jars. Possibly up to 90 sites. We know nothing of the people who created them. Well, no shit, you don't know nothing. Yet it was a fate of, or a feat of great or organization. Technical skill and immense hard work. The jars remain today a strange and wonderful sight. I don't know about wonderful sight, but definitely strange. Literally. Okay, I know I'm really gonna put you this one. So get your shot shots ready. Why was Teo Tai Huakan Huakan abandoned? Just 30 miles, which is 48 kilometers north of Mexico City, lies an abandoned ruined city covering 8 square miles. That's 20 square, uh, square kilo, uh, kilometers. It's pyramids and palaces, rose irrigation systems lie deserted as they did in the 12th century AD when the Aztecs came upon the place. The Aztecs named it Teotihuacan, or the place where one becomes a god. But we do not know what the people who built the city called it, since they left no written record. They abandoned the, the place around 700 AD and took their secrets with them. How many is good? Okay, I'm going to... Go on a limb here. How many of you already thinking, okay, people are saying it's aliens? But if you'd visited Teotihuacan around the year 600 AD, you would have found a thriving metropolis of, a, of around 200,000 people. The Pyramid of the Sun, the third largest in the world, would have glowed bright red, bright red under the sun, and you could have walked a mile long the mile-long avenue of the dead, flanked by temples and palaces. You could, you would, not could, you would, also have seen people using sophisticated irrigation systems necessary to feed such a large population. Just a hundred years later, Teotihuacan Huacan, was deserted. What happened to this amazing civilization? It's possible that soil erosion meant that people were no longer able to feed themselves, and this could have caused civil war. Civil war. Perhaps they were attacked by outside tribes. We don't. We do know a fire swept through the city, 
and the people left. Although investigations at the, at the Pyramid of the Moon continue, we may never know the name of the city or its people, but what they left behind is spectacular. Okay. Do Rivers of Mercury protect Emperor, Qu Emperor Quintum's complex? In 1974, a farmer was digging on his land in Xi'an in central China. To his amazement, he discovered a few f human figures made of terracotta. When the archaeologists arrived, they started uncovering statue after statue. Although work continues to this day, they estimate there is a hidden army of 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots, 520 horses, and 150 cavalry. Try adding that all that up and see what you get. Each figure was constructed individually. Well, no shit, it wouldn't be constructed at the same time. With unique faces and physiques. And they carried sophisticated crossbows and swords. This model army was made for the Emperor Xinxi Huang, who died in 210 BC, and who was the first to unite China. His mem memorial was created in the form of an underground necropolis protected by an army of soldiers and weapons. The complex covers around 38 square miles. That's 98 square, uh, square uh, kilometers. With the emperor's tomb in the center. However, no one has yet entered the tomb. As there are rumors of booby-trapped weapons protecting the entrance and rivers of mercury flowing around the tomb. The Chinese government has decided it's wise to leave the tomb unopened until they know more about it. The ancient Chinese thought mercury bestowed eternal life, and Emperor Quinn reportedly drank it every day. Probably what killed him, or in this case, probably what, probably the cause of his death. 